What is the role of negotiation in business success? Every contract, every agreement, every relationship, every exchange is a negotiation. It couldn't be more important. We talked to an expert, Sanjay Yadav. This is the Economics for Entrepreneurs podcast. Entrepreneurs are economic heroes. They improve others' lives with preferred products and services, innovation, and value. We offer you the knowledge and tools to make your entrepreneurial journey a successful one by building a beautiful business. Now, here's your host, Hunter Hastings. Hi, Hunter Hastings here. The Austrian principle of the market as a process is universally useful to business people. In a process, everything is moving and changing, rather than fixed. You're able to advance a process and generate better outcomes. You're able to adjust and adapt. And if you act and learn today, you can apply that learning at the next stage tomorrow. The process view is dynamic, energizing, empowering, and optimistic. It's about betterment, a better future. And it's about skill development. You can become more and more skillful at operating any process using the act and learn method. The process view can be adopted for all parts of the market system. Value is a process. Pricing is a process. Design is a process. Decision making is a process. Relationship management is a process, and so on. Processes are systems of action, identifying what to do and how to do it, including doing the right things in the right order so that there is an accumulation of value over time. Negotiation is a process and responds to process skills. Negotiation skills are vital to your business. They're going to directly affect your cash flows, your costs, your margins, your scale, your financing, and your resource allocation. They're going to indirectly affect your brand reputation, your organizational designs, and your delegated management capabilities based on the employment contracts you negotiate, for example. Happily, Negotiation is a field of human action that can be studied and a field of knowledge you can learn, a process skill that can be trained and at which you can improve. Today's guest, Sanjay Yadav, learned negotiation from both sides of the desk in the corporate world. He worked in procurement for big multinationals, and he worked in contract negotiation for suppliers of creative services of all sizes to big multinationals. He has since become an entrepreneur and teaches and trains executives in the art and science of negotiation. Sanjay is CEO of Purple Sky Partnership, which he recently formed, building on 20 years of commercial and operational experience with Mars Inc., Philip Morris International, and WPP. He's lived and worked in Western and Central Europe, in the Middle East, Asia Pacific, and now North America. Sanjay, welcome to Economics for Entrepreneurs. Hey, Hunter. Thank you for having me. I'm uh, looking forward to uh, engaging with your budding entrepreneurs in your community. Good. Well, you've got a lot to offer them. We're going to talk today about negotiation, something that you're an expert in. And you believe that's not only a critical entrepreneurial skill, but also a life skill. So everyone can can benefit from that. Um, We'll explore that today. We'll Describe your own development of a very carefully constructed island of specialization. I say that because uh, last episode was about islands of specialization with Per Byland. Um, you're a leading and uniquely qualified and equipped consultant in commercial negotiation, uh, which specifically includes negotiation with corporate procurement departments, which <laughs> yeah. is a business role I know a lot of our listeners find themselves in from time to time. So we always like to start, Sanjay, with your origin story. Tell us how you developed the experience and and skills that got you where you are today. Okay. um, Well, thank you. Um, Origin story. Let me think. I mean, probably just best to start from the beginning. Um, So I was born in uh, New Delhi in India. Uh, I moved to London in the UK with my parents, basically because my, my dad's job got him transferred over there. And I was three years old at the time. So I've grown up in London from the age of three. Uh, I'm British uh, by national and now living in California. I've studied uh, a master's in uh, chemical engineering in the UK. So I did a five-year program there. Uh, I worked for an engineering company for a short while, um, 
but really my entrepreneurial nature and my real desire to get some real world business experience led me to look at other opportunities. And I was very fortunate to do a variety of different roles in commercial, in operations, in supply chain, uh, business development, and also uh, strategic procurement within the 20 years that I spent in my corporate life. So, you know, I've been very, very blessed because I work for some really, truly global organization, global brands. Um, and of the 20 years, I spent about 10 years with uh, M&Ms, the, uh, the global candy and pet care business, with global brands like, you know, Mars and M&Ms and Snickers and their pet care brands like Pedigree and Whiskers, as I'm sure your listeners will be very familiar with. Uh, I also worked for uh, Philip Morris International for seven years. Now, Philip Morris is a global cigarette brand leader with brands like Marlboro and Parliament. And I also worked uh, around three years for WPP, which is the world's largest uh, advertising company. And the last two years of my um, corporate world, give or take, uh, was spent working for a negotiating consulting organization called Scottwork International where I was basically a trained coach uh, and I would uh, teach or coach uh, clients around the world who came from a variety of industries, from different departments. And I would basically, um, you know, teach them depending on what their issues were. Um, and once all of that was done, I then left all of that and I set up my own consulting about three years ago. Um, and here I am today, uh, still running that uh, in the US. So um, looking back on my 20 odd years, uh, you can appreciate uh, if you're working for large organizations like uh, M&Ms and Philip Morris, uh, you do get an opportunity to do different roles, but you also get opportunities to live and work abroad. And I've been very lucky. Um, I've lived and worked in Europe, in uh, Central Europe, um, in Middle East. I worked uh, in India for a while. I also spent a large number of years in Asia Pacific, where I was based both in Hong Kong for, for about four years and Singapore for about four years. Um, but most of the, um, the, the, the 20 years that I've spent in the corporate world has really been spent in the commercial and the procurement function, where I've either set up the department or I've transformed the, uh, the department from scratch, both for M&Ms and, um, and Philip Morris. Um, now, client procurement. Uh, you can imagine when you're working for uh, organizations like this, you're dealing with a large amounts of money. Uh, so the guys like M&Ms and, and uh, Philip Morris make sure that their procurement people are extremely well-trained when it comes to negotiations. So uh, they methodically trained me. I went to multiple negotiation training programs. I also conducted my own negotiations across different uh, parts of the world variety of suppliers, some on medium to small scale projects, some on large scale complex projects where there was a multi-million dollar budgets associated with it, and even spent a lot of time negotiating with media and creative agencies uh, in different regions and occasionally used uh, translators to do our negotiations uh, you know, in countries like, for example, China or South Korea and Japan, where English is not their first language, and you need to make sure that your intent and your content uh, gets understood. So we would uh, negotiate via translator. So that was an interesting experience. Um, that was the client side. But when I came across to WPP, now I was on the supplier side. And yet I was still dealing with the same global clients like M&Ms and even bigger organizations like Unilever and the PNGs of this world. Um, and which meant that I had to now learn to negotiate uh, a different set of skills because I had to help negotiate annual contracts uh, or project contract or agency fees with large and very powerful global clients. So you, you might you might tell our listeners a little bit about WPP Sanjay, um, so that they understand the the range of companies within that umbrella, the the size and the scope and the activities and so on like that. I believe it's quite a very varied portfolio, and you are helping companies of all all different sizes. Is that right? That's correct. I mean, WPP um, is a is a humongous organization. To give you an idea, WPP is actually a holding company. And within the holding company, there are approximately, and they change all the time, uh, 600 operating companies within its empire. 
But the, the way the business operates is very clearly demarcated into four pillars. So number one is media. Number two is uh, creative and digital agencies. Number three is consumer insights, which is basically market research. And the fourth pillar is uh, focused on public relations. So that's the whole empire within WPP. And these are the areas that they focus on uh, and use the operating companies to, uh, to drive the business forward for their clients. So people are not necessarily familiar with the WPP brand, but they are very much familiar with their operating companies like Group M, Ogilvy, Cantor, uh, Wunderman Thompson, for example, which used to be previously J. Walter Thompson, uh, Gray Worldwide, VML YNR, for example. I mean, there's just you know hundreds of these companies. And these are yeah. the, the we had, big uh, We had Rory Sutherland, who's the vice chair of Ogilvy in the UK on the podcast a few weeks ago. So we've okay. we've come across Ogilvy at least. Okay, good. So it's it's a unique organization because every individual operating company manages their own PL, their own brand identity and business direction. So WPP kind of like at the back end takes care of the uh, the overall messaging, but also takes its annual fee with no exceptions and delays and allows the individual operating companies CEOs or CFOs to run their own business as they see fit. So the when you look at the empire, the different sizes of the companies, you will notice that there are um, companies that vary from billion-dollar organizations to small boutique enterprises with a handful of employees. Uh, it's, it's an extremely complex business with multiple stakeholders you know, who have their own agendas, uh, they have their own different levels of maturity, uh, and they have their own business culture and financial strength. I mean, I, one of the best ways, I think, to describe WPP uh, and how it mysteriously functions is to compare it to a bumblebee. You know, if you, if, if you look at a bumblebee, you look at the size of the bee's body is disproportionately bigger than its wings. And common sense tells us that it shouldn't be able to fly. And yet it flies quite easily and navigates quite well. And that's basically what WPP is. Yeah, so you were part of the wings, huh? Helping it to fly in the right direction. <laughs> yeah, so I, I joined them uh, at the stage where in Asia Pacific, uh, they were looking to transform the way they managed their cost and also the governance that they had in place at that time with the suppliers in Asia Pacific region. And my role was to basically set up both the commercial and the procurement services department from scratch for the APAC region. And this region is huge. I mean, you, you know, you've got over 30,000 employees, uh, the supplier base is in excess of 10,000, and the spend, which is the, the money that leaves the business uh, to these third-party suppliers, and is, is in excess of $1.2, $1.3 billion. And that's just within the top 10 companies of WPP. Wow. So wow. You, you can imagine the scale, the size of the project that I was basically mm -hmm. uh, potentially, uh, or at least signed up to do. Um, now, of course, when you're working at the... Um, at the holding company level, one of the key objectives for me was to actually get all of these key operating companies to work collectively um, so we can actually assess the supplier spend, which is known as uh, third-party spend in procurement language, which basically, as I said, uh, is the money leaving the business to in a better uh, organized manner, in a better productive manner, in a better governance manner. So we can, if we do it collectively, we can then also share the uh, the financial benefits that comes out of it because what we're really trying to do is use WPP scale. So that's when you say third party spend that's like spending money on TV ads or stadium sponsorships those kinds of things. Exactly. So any any money that is leaving the business in order for it to do business. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, so that's in 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 procurement language is known as third party spend which basically means the money going to the suppliers. And suppliers could be variety and yeah. they're divided into categories. Okay. Okay. And uh, of course, when I was dealing with the variety of companies, I was also dealing with a variety of individuals, um, which meant that there were different styles of leadership and they, were, and they all had different perception uh, towards procurement, which uh, unfortunately wasn't good because most of them didn't trust procurement. And if I'm really you know, being blunt, uh, they didn't even like procurement. Um, and you know that was a big barrier for me to try and get any work done with these guys because, you know, here you are, you feel like okay, I, I can bring some value because I understand procurement, um, but having procurement-related conversation um, led to the fact that they always talked about the fact that procurement 
doesn't understand value. Uh, they felt that procurement always slowed down processes or projects. And all they ever talked about was cost cutting. So, you know, the CEOs and the CFOs were very reluctant uh, to talk to me. Um, and that was a, the, one of the biggest barriers that I had to overcome right from it, literally in the first year. Um, you know, because I came from a very mature procurement community uh, where everybody understood procurement within the uh, CPG environment, within the client base environment with these guys. Um, they'd clearly been uh, scarred with their experience with uh, with procurement people on the client side. And they were not so, how shall I say, trusting or willing to uh, talk to me because, you know, just because I'm WPP and just because I think I can help them from procurement. Yeah, you're, you're the cost police for the creative cowboys. They don't like it. Yeah. And, and the biggest thing they used to think was that if, well, if I tell Sanjay, what's my budget towards this spend or this budget to I'm going to be spending with the supplier, he's going to basically start cutting that budget. You know, so it was it was fair to say that the discussions used to be polite, but they wouldn't uh, be you know very open in sharing information. So um, how did you how do you overcome that? Well, yeah, I mean you can imagine in the first year I, I made very little progress. I mean, um, you know, I, I was basically chasing ends, thinking that they are going to give me some information that I can work and help them and build a, a regional strategy, but that just wasn't happening. So that was a real challenge. Um, the what I needed to basically do at that time was to understand that my perceived value, i.e. my procurement offering uh, as my services was actually not something they saw value in. So it was clear that I needed to change tact. I needed to find something that they would see value in. And then we can start having conversations around procurement and potentially other things that I could bring uh, from a procurement point of view to their business. So my definition of value is very simple. You know, it's being of service which means that if I have to create value, uh, I have to be able to deploy my service. Now, these CEOs are my clients. Their values first need to be understood. I clearly then need to adapt my offering to be able to then be of value to them. That was basically the, the mission that I was working on. And I knew that my standard procurement offerings was not something that was going to work. Uh, and if I was going to build any trust, uh, promote any any uh, business or procurement organization, I needed to basically change and adapt and offer them something that was of value to them. Yeah, and in our brand of economics, Sanjay, we say that value is subjective. It's in the head of the customer, and you're describing that. They were your customers, and you had to find out what they thought was valuable, what they felt was valuable. It's a feeling. Yeah, absolutely. And that's really what led to meet stop uh, stop talking less about the procurement uh, services and more about what they needed and that's what led to me creating the uh, the negotiating skills workshop which i had curated just for the agency so that's really how it came about yeah and that's a very entrepreneurial action you you identified the subjective value and you created something to to make that possible which was your which was your workshop. So take us into that. How did you design and build that? Yeah, um, look, I mean, I had to basically start from the beginning. Uh, I would go and, and have open-ended discussions with the leadership team around the world. Uh, it took months uh, for it to take place. The objective was very simple. I would try to listen and understand what their issues were, what their pain points were, and not necessarily talk about procurement and just basically try and understand, look, tell me what is it that you are struggling with and maybe I'll go back and try and come with a potential solution that you think uh, I can help you with. And if that is something we can work on, then that's something where we can add value jointly. So yeah, we, have a, we have a fancy term for that, Sanjay. It's called empathic diagnosis. So the empathy part is listening and trying to understand what's in their head, and diagnostics is figuring out how to address that. Okay. So you were yeah. using empathic diagnosis, even if you didn't use the terminology. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the assessment was basically uh, concluded two points. Uh, and the two points were, number one, negotiation was really a leadership issue. Now, what I mean by that is that the leaders in the organization did not really empower their staff, which means they didn't uh, pro provide the appropriate guidelines on what the teams needed to do in their negotiation, nor did they provide the skills or the training needed to help them become more confident and to achieve more consistent deal making, which meant really that the individuals or the teams were pretty much left to fend for themselves when it came to negotiating with their clients. And the result was that the outcomes of the negotiation used to vary. So different teams used to get different results. Mm -hmm. uh, most of their contract uh, negotiations were delayed by months, which means 
they were still working on the projects and not getting paid because the contract hadn't been signed and the procurement would not issue payments because the PO wasn't in the system. Uh, and you know the, the outcomes, commercial outcomes were relatively poor or at least below what they were expecting for, for the, uh, the services that they were providing. So that was from a leadership um, issue when, uh, when you did the assessment. The, the other thing that was very obvious uh, was that the organization itself didn't have what I call a negotiating culture at part, as part of their business culture. Um, and what I mean by a negotiating culture, uh, not having a negotiating culture is that whenever they were confronted with a negotiation or having need to uh, talk to a client, there was a general dislike towards uh, negotiating. They didn't, they didn't feel comfortable negotiating. Um, they were more, I would say, deal focused and hence quite anxious to get the deals done rather than negotiate the deals. Um, they felt that they were not being treated fairly in contract negotiations or even their um, you know, agency fee compensation. Uh, they felt that they didn't get the respect that they deserved and all, because for all the wonderful things that they were doing for their clients. And I used to often hear them you know, complaining, saying that clients don't understand value, that's why they don't pay for it, and procurement, least of all, understand value and the value of creativity and only talk about cost. You know, but really, in reality, uh, what it was that whilst they were great creative people, they were not skilled negotiators and nor had invested the time to skill up, which means that they were not able to commercialize their creativity and health and hence felt undervalued or poorly remunerated for the work that they did. So um, just to pick up on that term, and maybe you're going to tell us this as you go through, uh, Sanjay, but negotiating culture. So I... I would guess, not knowing much about it, that that uh, many companies don't have a negotiation culture. But are you implying that some do, and it's it's something you can develop? Yes, um, I mean, negotiating culture is absolutely um, developable, so you can actually develop it. Uh, but it really needs to be led by the leadership team. Okay. Uh, there are organizations out there. I mean, you know, um, without mentioning the names, uh, but uh, who who have a very mature uh, negotiating culture because they will see conflict, so which means the things that they're trying to achieve uh, as an opportunity rather than a, a battle or rather than a challenge. And when you see um, operating companies if, uh, operating under a negotiating culture, then they are more keen to get deals done because they're confident. They, they know that they are able to bridge the gap uh, they're able to overcome any conflict that they may be facing. So you're training these folks to at the agencies to improve their commercial outcomes. Yeah. And they might be small agencies dealing with much more economically powerful clients. So I'm sure everybody who's listening will be interested in learning the, the process for, for doing that, developing the program. So um, take us into some of those those areas if you can. Okay. Um well, as I said, I mean, I was, you know, I was making very little progress on my so-called day job with uh, WPP procurement. Uh, so I saw the opportunity to adapt my role to bring more value to my internal clients. And even though this was not really part of my job, I, I knew that I, I had the opportunity to maybe potentially shift some behavior or at least their attitude towards procurement for, uh, for the, the leadership team or for the creative people to say, look, you know, procurement is not the enemy. There is a certain skill uh, that if you can learn it and practice it confidently, you'll be able to actually navigate yourself around these so-called uh, procurement people who are just frankly doing their job. Mm -hmm. um, so it was important for me to adapt my own role uh, to be able to then eventually get uh, invited in, eventually get the trust built so that I can then, you know, at some point, maybe in the second year, maybe in the third year, to be able to then do the procurement role that I was actually hired to do. Um, so. What I basically did was I kind of like stopped my normal procurement activity. I focused on developing some form of a negotiation program, and it started very small. Uh, I proposed and developed a half-day presentation, uh, and I titled it Managing Client Procurement. Uh, I pitched it to the various leadership teams across the, the various operating companies. Uh, and even though you know, my objective really was to build trust, I just did not realize uh, how much of a need there was for it. Um, even though it was a very small and very humble beginning, it was only a half-day presentation, as I said, where I would stand up and 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 basically say my stuff. 
and there'd be a few questions uh, back and forth. Uh, but it really grew. Uh, it really started to resonate um, because I would talk about how the other side, the client procurement, would plan and prepare for the negotiation when it came to negotiating with creative agency. I would include the tactics that the client procurements would use, the language and the tone uh, they would deploy in their negotiations. And let's face it, uh, on, on the odd occasion, they would also ethically drift in their negotiations. And I would be able to show them that, look, you know, not everything that has been said to you is the truth. You know, you need to be able to find out more uh, if the other party is ethically drifting at any given point. So, you know, it was the, the idea was to be able to share with them that, you know, there are some games being played by uh, client procurement. And it's important that agencies understand those games, understand the rules so they can negotiate uh, better when it came to negotiating with clients and client procurement. So it really started to resonate. I got more and more people attending these programs. Uh, I got more and more positive feedbacks as of uh, the subsequent negotiation that took place with their client procurement. So really, it felt like the needle had uh, started to shift uh, on their perception towards um, on procurement. Yeah, you were getting marketplace feedback, positive feedback. Yeah, and you know, real life examples. You know, there's nothing better than that. But to be honest with you, that was the easy part because that's uh, that was easy to put together. Because what I had done was I just simply looked back at my client procurement days when I was with M and M's and and with with Philip Morris, and I just said, okay, I know I used to negotiate with these same very agencies, these same very creative people. You know, how did I do it? So I would just basically list out my training. I would list out my tactics and the language and the tone that I use. And I just basically shared that with them. Um, and it was, you know, uh, frankly, to me, I thought, well, you know, everybody should know this. And for them, it was like completely a new realm of uh, understanding the negotiation that took place with clients. The challenging part really was um, uh, when the popularity of this program grew, uh, grew because as it became more popular, the, it became more complex because uh, I was uh, getting asked more and more about content. I was getting uh, more and more uh, asked to advise them and coach them on the deeper and more sometimes more specific issues on they were facing with their clients. So in a way, I had to also skill up and learn more in order to uh, and continue adding value. Um, and, you know, one of the things that uh, it became apparent to me was that there was a lot of joy uh, and 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 the benefit in being client procurement because I came with a huge uh, brand. I came with a huge economical, powerful machine that supported me in my negotiation mm -hmm. because there was a natural need for suppliers to come and deal with me to try and win contracts. But now, being on the WPP side, on 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 the supplier side, this was no longer the case. And most, uh, most of the time when I spoke to the people on the creative side, agency side, they felt that they were always negotiating from a position of weakness. And um, they felt that there were other suppliers or other agencies that could win the same contract. And especially if you believed client procurement, uh, they felt that they couldn't be more demanding. They couldn't say no when they needed to say no. So they felt a little bit weaker uh, when it came to negotiating with the, uh, the procurement team. Now, how did you cure them of that weakness? Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, it's, it's trying to basically find a way to develop a program uh, that addresses both the, uh, the subjective value and the objective value uh, in the workshop, okay? Um, so, it, of course, I needed to do more research. I read a lot about uh, negotiation. I, I researched a lot on authors and the various trainers. Uh, I reviewed a lot of uh, content being provided out there uh, with, from different institutions and organizations. I even attended a few negotiation training myself just to basically uh, learn from different organizations, the different tactics, the different skills that they uh, provide, just to enrich my own uh, background. And over time, um, I started to also um, focus more on addressing the confidence issue uh, of the people who are going into a negotiation, not just the content, which is already getting enriched uh, and the process, which is also developing, but also try and you know, address the uh, the confidence issue because there's a lot to do with the confidence as well. Because it's not the the thing I noticed was that um, you know the creative people, the agency people are very creative. Uh, they they know how to manage the the client. It's the confidence that was basically lacking in in getting what they wanted done. It's asking for what they wanted uh, was the, uh, the the challenge and the confidence in in demanding pretty much the fee that they wanted. So 
addressing both the confidence, addressing both the content as well, and also enriching the process was the total package uh, that I was, I was trying to build. A quick note. Did you know that we provide supplemental materials for each podcast? Listening to and understanding the key takeaways from our expert guests helps you think better about building a more beautiful business. Taking direct action and implementing these strategies is when the real work begins. Take a concrete, immediate step to implementing a better business model today by downloading the show notes and business tool we've created for this episode. Visit Mises.org slash E4EPod. That's M-I-S-E-S dot org slash E, the number 4, E, P-O-D, and click on today's episode. Now, back to our interview. Is, um, is, that, a, is that an equal balance, Sanjay, confidence and content? Or is it, was the confidence more important? Was the emotional part more, more important? The, the, I mean, the, it, it is the most important after you've got the content and the process bedded down. So you understand the process of negotiation. You understand the content and the skills associated with it. And then the confidence grows. So it's important to build the base, which is the content and the process. And then the confidence comes through the practice. So, yeah, I mean, look, in my, my one of the research, I, I, the thing that I noticed a lot in my the R&D uh, stage of my, my program development was that there is a lot of content, a lot of material out there on negotiations. And it sometimes even feels like there's a, you know, info obesity on the subject. Mm-hmm. But what I found less of is how do you actually do the negotiation? You know, so how to do the, the theory in the real world. Um, and, you know, my focus was not just knowing about negotiation, it's actually knowing how to negotiate. Uh, and the real question for me was, okay, so I know the theory, but how do I utilize it? How do I make it work? Uh, with real life challenges, with the, you know the real world problems that I'm facing right in front of me, so updating my program, developing my, my program was also to test the fitness of the program and its effectiveness uh, in the real world. Which meant that you know I had to find ways to implement the theory and bring the negotiations alive. Uh, and this is really where I was trying to bridge the gap between knowing and doing. Yeah, and presumably you've got teams going out there conducting actual negotiations based on your coaching, and then they come back, report how they did. So you've got some, some results feedback. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there was, there was, a, there was a methodology in place where we, we used to uh, create a very simple structure to measure the ROI uh, on the negotiation. So we would, you know, jointly just agree what, what we are trying to achieve. And, and then the idea was that because negotiation, as you know, is, uh, is not just the actual process of trying to deal. Negotiation actually starts when the deal is done. You'd be amazed how much negotiation actually happens once the deal is done. A lot of people think that, okay, I've done the deal, the negotiation's over. Negotiation actually just starts once you've signed the deal. So if you think you've negotiated a tough deal, you watch out how long, how many tough deals you're going to have to face as the, as the project continues. So we would develop this ROI model uh, with a certain KPIs to be able to then people to say, look, you know, I went to a negotiation, I used the following skills, this is what I got as a result of it. And these are the outcomes that I want to report back. So there was like a feedback loop, uh, not just for these people to practice, but frankly, for me to enrich the program, to make it more specific, uh, to make it more direct, uh, using you know, real world examples, saying, look, your colleagues out there are doing the same thing. This is what they did. This is the outcome they got. This is what they did. It didn't work so well. So this is what we need to look at, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it was developing I would say on the go with the you know live data, so to speak, uh, being fed back into the program. That's a kind of counterintuitive point that the you make the deal, you sign the contract, but the negotiation is continues after that. It's not uh, it doesn't end there. So negotiation is an ongoing skill. It sounds like it's ongoing, absolutely. And if you're dealing with procurement, rest assured, negotiation never ends. Because procurement will always feel that even if you think you've got a great deal, they'll think that they gave you too much. So they were going to try and, and always negotiate further and further as the contract period uh, is being observed. So if you've got a one-year contract or a three-year contract, rest assured you'll be negotiating throughout that period. So the skill is omnipresent. It, you need to be always alive and active towards it. And it's, it's something that you need to make sure that um, you know, you're ready for. So you have to be negotiation ready all the time. 
So negotiation is a is a process. I think we've gathered that from what you've told us, but it's an ongoing process. It never never stops. Can you can you capture that process? Is that how you teach it? Yeah, I mean, look, negotiation actually is a very rich subject. You know, there are uh, over 130 learning points in a negotiation. Okay. Is that uh, 130 I'm... you've developed or you've you've so, identified from your research? Yeah, so it's it's a combination of both. So mm-hmm. that it's a combination of having myself gone through the training, um, through the research that I've done, through the feedback that I've uh, received from pe- uh, from the people that I've, I've uh, coached. So it's a combination of of all of that. So it's as I said, it's it's a it's relatively a large skill teaching point. Okay, uh, and we all know that uh, when people come to the uh, the workshop, they're not going to learn the whole 130 points. And frankly, most of them don't even need the whole 130. Um, the idea is to be able to progressively build the skill mm-hmm. and to be able to create the multiplier effect. So the idea is very simple. You know, I would I would talk to the uh, the client or I would talk to the participant and say, look. What are the issues that you're facing? What are the you know uh, top three or top five conflicts that you face on the most regular basis? Let's identify the skills, the teaching points that you need to be able to overcome these conflicts, and let's practice those skills deliberately. And the idea is to build from that. So you probably just start with maybe five or maybe ten learning points, uh, practice those learning points, and then take it from there. You know, then then you start learning and getting better and better because. The more you practice, the more confident you become, uh, and the more learning points you want to now uh, chase after. But give us an example of just one, Sanjay. What's a learning point? Um, well, learning point. A, a good example is um, ask yourself the question: When is it appropriate to negotiate? It's very important that if you're in a complex situation. I know complex sounds very dramatic, but conflict just generally means that you know you want something, they won't give it or there is a gap between what you ask for and you're not getting it, et cetera. It's just a conflict you, uh, that you need, need to try and overcome. The most important thing is to understand when is it appropriate to negotiate because there are actually 10 different ways to resolve any conflict and negotiation is just one of them. So it's a skill in itself to know when negotiation is the most appropriate method to resolve a conflict because Negotiation is sometimes not the best strategy to start with because there are sometimes faster, sometimes even cheaper ways to get the deal done. So, Such, such as what? I mean, for example, persuasion. Okay. If I can persuade you, Hunter, and say, Hunter, can we have the call uh, two hours later today uh, because I need to take my dog out for a walk who's not feeling well and needs his afternoon uh, nap. Is that okay? Um, and you say, well, you know, it's not a big deal. I can do it. I've just persuaded you and I don't need to negotiate because by negotiating, there are some negativities in in negotiation as well. And you need to be prepared to be able to offer something in return, because if you're asking for something and you're not willing to offer something, then you're going to struggle to do a deal. So Mm -hmm. negotiation is not always the best place to start. And I always tell people, have you tried the other methods? Because you might find that you might even get this done cheaper and faster without even giving anything up, i.e. without even negotiating. Okay, so you know it's a it's a stepwise process. Um, you know the participants come in. Uh, we focus on the key areas uh, that they are uh, facing with respect to conflict. We practice the skills to improve their confidence, and the idea is to build the um, uh, the multiplier effect. And like anything, you know, it's the more you practice, uh, the more confident you become. You build a momentum, and before long, you start becoming an expert. Well, good. And then you're you're driving towards outcomes all the time. Can you? Can you simulate those in the workshop, or do you have to um, wait until they go practice in the real world? I know. I mean, we so we practice them. So the idea is to combine the theory and the practical aspect uh, of the uh, the negotiation within the workshop. So the idea is there'll be uh, some teaching points. You will that's the theory part. You will learn the teaching points, but really you need to go and practice them. So I will create a conflict environment for you. Uh, and you will be allowed uh, or at least uh, given the opportunity to go and then practice those skills and see for yourself how well you did. So basically, um, that's why I have video replays uh, in my negotiation. So what I do is I have a mock negotiation, which has a, a conflict built in. Um, you are then encouraged to resolve that conflict. I will video record that conflict or your negotiation. And once the mock negotiations are over, 
um, I will then use that video as part of the replay and I will add the, the coaching and the debriefing to show you how you did versus your preparation uh, and what you could have done better. And more importantly, sometimes you see other participants doing something different that you may think, well, you know, I like that. I'm going to do it in my next negotiation or I didn't like that so much and I'm just going to make sure I do less of it. So it's a very practical way to learn the theory and more importantly, to get it into motion because theory is great. The, the real skill is to be able to deploy it. And if you're not able to deploy it, then you know, you're know going to struggle to do deals in the real world and feel frustrated, frankly, because you think you know it, but you can't make it work for you. Yeah, That's you why I, I always say that negotiation is, a, is both art and science because it's a combination of two. The science part of negotiation is the process part, which has its recognizable steps. You know, you, you have a certain number of steps. There are a certain number of skills associated with that step. You learn the process. You practice the skills. And so you are able to then navigate and understand where you are in that negotiation. And then you can control the negotiation better and don't let what I call a negotiation happen to you. Okay. And the artistic part of the negotiation is basically how you behave, how you deliver, how you talk in a negotiation. It's really where your personality becomes part of the overall negotiating culture. But, you know, as I said, most of all, it's a skill, you know, and you have to practice it. There is no way around it you know the, the the more you practice the better you become this is why i believe that uh, you know you know negotiators or at least skilled negotiators are happier people uh, because they navigate uh, and control negotiations with more confidence they are happier because they can resolve conflict uh, better because they see conflict as an opportunity and and not as a battle um so you know it's 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 a it's a skill that really can help you both at work or at home with your friends uh, pretty much everywhere. It's just the question is, you have to decide whether you want to negotiate it, you know, and that's the decision you have to make. And that's the dilemma every negotiator has. Yeah. Sanjay, can you tell us about any actual cases that our listeners can learn from or your training or your approach resulted in a better outcome for your client? Um, well, let's see. Uh, I mean, without giving any names uh, for uh, confidentiality reason, I can I can give you a good example during my WPP time. So when we were negotiating with clients, okay, there was uh, an upcoming annual agency contract, a fee negotiation uh, with their long term global CPG client, where we knew most of the negotiation was going to take place with client procurement, and based on their previous encounters, we knew that the client was both demanding. And the procurement were notorious at getting what they wanted. So we knew that this was going to be a tough gig. Okay. And um, I was asked not only to coach the lead negotiators, but also to participate in their actual negotiation with their global client, which is quite unique. Um, so, you know, two months before the negotiation uh, was about to take place, we started our preparation. Uh, I used my procurement knowledge to skill them up on the procurement tactics, the various scenarios that they will face. And how they will, how they can navigate around the the pitfalls. Uh, so apart from the um, the preparation, I also role played the client procurement. So I was actually the bad guy on the other side of the table in the mock negotiations. So basically to help them practice the skills that they had learned in the theory. And I would video record uh, these negotiations, and I would use the the replays to basically improve, point out the areas that they have done well. Uh, or not so well, and then we would go back and rehearse again. So after a few rounds, uh, the gang was becoming negotiation ready, and it was you know, soon time to face the, uh, the clients. Um, and as I said, because I was invited also to be, uh, to be a participant in, in, the, in the negotiation, that was an added benefit. Uh, but the, the rule was very simple. I would go in as part of the negotiation as an observer, which means that I will not speak in the negotiation I will just simply introduce myself uh, as a new employee on the client account. And hence, I was just still learning the ropes and I was just going to sit in the corner and basically watch the negotiation take place. Mm -hmm. By the way, that's an old procurement trick, you know, <laughs> to, to pretend that I don't know nothing and I just keep yeah. You know, it's a good old procurement trick. Um, so as an observer, my main task was basically to, 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 uh, to do two things. One was to observe the, our own team's performance. And secondly, to look out for what I call signals from the client procurement. And these are often missed when you're under pressure. So catching and reading a signal is absolutely paramount in a negotiation. It can really 
dramatically change the direction and the rhythm of the negotiation. So listening for them, looking out for them is a skill in itself. And it's not easy to do when you're in a stressed environment. Hence, it needs deliberate practice. Okay, so um, here I am. I'm the observer. I'm sitting in the negotiation. I was focused on these, uh, on these signals. And once the, the negotiation would come to an end, I would then provide my feedback on what I heard, on what I saw, the behaviors that I had observed uh, from the, uh, the client side. And uh, after every round, the team would basically collectively put their uh, thinking hats together. We would fine tune the strategy. They will restructure the proposals when they were needed. We would rehearse the scenarios again under video. Uh, we would practice them and we just go back in. You know, so we did that multiple times. And it took about three months uh, to, to do the deal. So it's relatively a long time. It's a big contract. It's a big spend, a uh, big budget uh, creative deal. Um, and we got pretty much close to what we wanted. It was hard work. Uh, but it was worth every effort, um, yeah, the whole three months and even the two months leading up to it. So you can imagine five months of work in getting the deal done. The experience really was what and how we did it was actually remembered the most. You know, our team felt better prepared. We were more confident in negotiating our demands and more skilled in managing the games that procurement played. And, you know, we, we were ready. We they could spot them when they were coming, and we knew the skills that we needed to 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 adopt to get around it to to avoid the pitfalls. So, you know, clearly we had created a very great, um, fun negotiating culture uh, during those five months. Yeah, that's a great story. So, did, one of my questions is going to be: is is it a universal skill? We've, I was uh, thinking about some of the companies that we have in our venture capital fund where. You're a tiny little startup and you're negotiating with Walmart or somebody like that for shelf space, or you're negotiating with one of your giant packaged goods companies like M&M Mars for yeah. role as a supplier. Is it, this is true for everybody who's in a negotiation or one of those procurement relationships? Yes. I mean, negotiation is universally applicable because it's a process uh, which has a recognizable steps, as I said. So each step has numerous skills attached to it. Uh, and you just need to understand where you are in the negotiation process while you're having the discussion with the other party, what skills that you need at that step to be able to go to the next step in case you are stuck in a deadlock or in case you're not making progress. And if you are making progress, what are the skills needed to keep moving the deal forward? So negotiation can be used in any industry across all departments, whether it's an internal or ex uh, external discussions uh, in your business. It can be if you're buying, it could be used if you're selling, whether you're pitching to a client or to a supplier or even receiving a, a proposal from the other party. So it can be absolutely used everywhere. In fact, it can even be used in your personal life, you know, and it can even be used, uh, you know, as part of your negotiation with your spouse, which I wouldn't recommend, but... <laughs> Could even do that as well. Yeah, I know about giving things up in that negotiation. Yeah, I, I wouldn't recommend it because I haven't won a single negotiation in my life. <laughs> Despite your skills. One of the subjects we have talked about here with uh, Professor Stephen Phelan, who uh, told us a little bit about negotiation from an academic research standpoint, was the role of trust and building trust. Yeah. Um, but he also talked about control mechanisms. So you've got a contract, you've got a collaborative agreement, um, you've got some intent that's associated with that, um, but you need the control mechanisms to make sure that the behaviors and outcomes are uh, what you negotiated. So um, can you tell us about trust in negotiations when often, as you said, the other side's playing games and, and there could be some adversarial content in it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, building mutual trust in a negotiation is absolutely key, especially if you're in a long-term relationship or in a long-term working relationship with the other party. Now, in all negotiations, there are four dilemmas that every negotiator faces. Now, skillfully managing and understanding these dilemmas helps you build the trust. I'll give an example of, of one of the dilemmas. Yeah. Pitching. Okay. One of the most common dilemmas that everybody faces is pitching. Who should pitch first? You know, if I've decided to pitch first, um, where should I pitch? 
when should I pitch? So when I say where should I pitch is basically the technical term is how should I anchor my pitch? Mm -hmm. Okay. So understanding pitching is very, very important. Understand when to pitch. Should it be uh, done by them? Should it be done by me is also a skill in itself. And if I've decided to do it myself, then where will I pitch? Uh, and how will I protect my pitch is a skill in itself, okay? And this needs to be practiced. So what I of, uh, very often see is that uh, the participants, in order to protect their proposal, start their pitch absurdly high because they know that they're going to get negotiated down, which is exactly what happens over time, okay? Mm -hmm. So what they do is um, they pitch absurdly high uh, and then they... Uh, continue with the negotiation process and as the the dust settles their final agreed price is often way off their initial pitched price which is their absurd pitch okay so now what happens is that behavior of theirs imagine what the other party is now thinking about you right they just have seen you concede large ground in getting the deal done what signals have you sent to them has your behavior now taught them that when I pitch, it's not really a real number? Mm -hmm. When I pitch, it's not a number that I really expect to do a deal. So what you're really demonstrating to them that you're actually not pitching in a genuine, trusted manner. And you know that you're going to get negotiated down, so you're absurdly pitching. And that doesn't really create trust. That's why I believe absurd pitching is absolutely the wrong way to go. Um, it's the wrong signal, it's the wrong behavior, it promotes bad behavior on the other side as well, okay? So if you're especially going to be working with people on a long-term basis, and if you're um, pitching absurdly, then you'll find that there's lack of trust between the two parties, okay? So the important thing is to understand how is it that I can actually pitch and yet protect that pitch. And the, the art is actually to pitch aggressively and not absurdly. Okay, mm -hmm. so how do you use the negotiation skills to protect the aggressive pitch when you know that you're going to get negotiated down? Okay, the idea is to is to have the skill to protect that pitch. So wherever you end up, uh, you haven't ended up too far from what you have said, and hopefully you maybe even uh, got some concessions in return to maintain the overall value. That particular behavior, i.e., aggressive pitching sends a more positive signal to the other party over time. Because what they learn is that what you say is credible and you are ready to negotiate for it. And that's why skilled negotiators are very creative and very courageous people because they do deals faster, because they're not wasting time giving uh, a ridiculous number. They go to the number that they know that they can defend and they can protect through their skill and they secure most of the deal in the negotiation. Yeah, and it sounds like part of that, Sanjay, is is long term thinking. Uh, I was taken by what you said that if I negotiate, I negotiate absurdly now, the loss of trust aspect of that might be months or years in the future. Absolutely, and we we touched upon it earlier. If you're negotiating with the other party, and then I'm and I just took procurement as an example, they're going to see the end of the contract as the beginning of the negotiation because they're going to remember that you came with a $1 million proposal and the deal was done at 200000 That means that $1 million number is not correct. Maybe the $200,000 is also not correct. So let me get more. And you will be in a regular battle with the procurement because they're going to want more because they just simply don't trust what you say based on what, the way you behave. So um, let's, let's move to your consulting business, Sanjay. Now you're an entrepreneur. So you're not working inside WPP or any of these other places. You're, a, you're an expert consultant. You're training people in negotiation skills. Obviously, you're, you're highly qualified. You've got all the intellectual property that it takes. What's, what do you see as the biggest challenge in being an entrepreneur in your space as opposed to a, a member of a giant corporation? Yeah. Uh, I mean, look, it's, it's, I'm sure your um, community will also agree. One of the hardest things for an entrepreneur is to manage the various activities that need attention around your core activity. Because there is so much to do uh, to build the right infrastructure uh, so you can be effective in providing or delivering your core areas of business. 
We all know time is limited, but these activities are endless. I remember when I was part of a, the larger organization, this so-called infrastructure was provided and it was even set up and managed by other people in the business. So I could just basically focus on my, uh, my day job, so to speak. Now this same infrastructure needs to be created and built by me and managed by me. That's a, you know, it, it's very taxing. Uh, it, it needs a lot of focus um, in order to be, uh, you know, focused on your key areas. You have to be organized and disciplined. Uh, you know, I often counsel myself to ensure that I'm doing the right things. I am still focused on my priorities, which, you know, sometimes change. Uh, learning to say no to things, uh, learning to say no to people that don't need immediate attention or action while still maintaining the relationship is a skill in itself. And yeah, even my negotiating ability gets used on a daily basis, you know. So, you know, it's it's all about making sure that you filter out the noise, uh, stick to your tune, uh, remain uh, focused because this is a daily challenge. You know, there's no doubt this is difficult. Uh, so if you're not enjoying it, um, you know, getting distracted and, and giving up becomes very easy. We mentioned islands of specialization at the beginning, Sanjay, because it's a it's a theme we're trying to develop. We're trying to change the the metaphor of of uh, starting a business from you know, fighting for market share or competing head to head with somebody else yeah. and creating this idea of an island, a beautiful island, a, an island that attracts people. People want to come to it, but it's unique. All islands are, are unique. And we, uh, we have a set of building blocks, which is aiming to please your customer, um, building from your own personal strengths and identity, which you obviously are well-resourced in that, not copying others, but, but being very different and always focusing on value as perceived by the customer, which you mentioned um, it was a key focus of yours at, at WPP. So um, yeah. how's your island of specialization? Are you, are you able to create a, a uniqueness for yourself in this in this area? You say that there's a lot of people in the negotiation field. So how, how do you achieve uniqueness? Yeah, I mean, my island of uh, specialization uh, was more organic um, uh, and it came over time. So when I first started uh, doing coaching and, and negotiating skills training, uh, I would do it with anyone or any any client or participants who was interested in learning the skill. So it included all types of industries, you know, various corporate functions, and I negotiated or I helped people negotiate from both sides of the table. But over time, I learned and I also enjoyed that I actually enjoyed two areas the most. One is negotiating with procurement. So if you are negotiating procurement, or if you're number two, if you're negotiating with clients, especially if your negotiation, if you feel is from a uh, position of weakness. That these are the two areas that I really enjoy coaching and, and training in. Because I think uh, both these areas need more creativity. It needs more courage than the normal to get the deal done. And, um, you know, and it also challenges my own fitness and, and, and knowledge on the subject. So teaching and coaching negotiation skills based around negotiating with clients, negotiating with uh, procurement gives me the most satisfaction. And I consider it as my uniqueness because of my background and what I've done and what I'm also doing. And this is uh, what I would regard as my island of specialization. Good. Good. That's very solid. And then, do you find there's word of mouth in your community that you get recommended after you've, you've uh, provided this, this skill yeah. set and training? Yeah. I mean, look, most of my client base uh, actually are built around word of mouth. You know, people who have attended my sessions. Uh, have gone on to recommend it either to their own colleagues at work or just to a wider network. Uh, or if the uh, the alumni has changed companies, I often get invited into the new organization uh, to, to see how I can potentially help improve their negotiating culture. Um, and yeah, so it, most of my business is, is word of mouth. And I'd be happy uh, to, to discuss uh, with your listeners if they're interested to learn more. Uh, but, you know, there, there is a lot of information about my program and the various offerings that I, uh, that I give, uh, that I provide. And also the, uh, the area of specialization is also captured there uh, on my website. So if it's okay, I can share my website with you. Please, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so it's uh, www.purpleskypartnership.com. So that's one word, purpleskypartnership.com. Okay, sky as in? As in the sky above our heads, Purple Sky yes. Partnership. That's correct. Good. Well, Sanjay, thanks very much for sharing all of your 
experience and skill and, and expertise today and your entrepreneurial story. We, we love those kinds of entrepreneurial stories where you, you gather knowledge, you gather expertise, you start to accumulate some skills that others don't have, and then you, you share them with others as an entrepreneur. So um, you have a beautiful story. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Hunter, for having me. And, and I really enjoyed the session. I hope uh, it's been useful and practical also for your uh, listeners. Well, I'm sure it will be. And uh, I presume when they go to your website, there's a way to get in touch with you there. If they, yes, so they there, is a, there, is a, yeah, there is a link uh, to contact me uh, and I get the, uh, the emails directly sent to me. Good. Well, Sanjay, thanks again very much indeed for being part of Economics for Entrepreneurs. You're welcome. Thank you. Economics for Entrepreneurs is a production of the Mises Institute. To explore more content like this, visit Mises.org. That's M-I-S-E-S dot org. For more from Hunter Hastings, check out HunterHastings.com.